But yeah, we had um, we did crabs yesterday. Nice, dude. I haven't had so crabs in so long. I mean, it was good. I fucking love eating crabs. Yeah. And I'll just like accept all of the cuts on my hands for the next several days. And the yeah. smell of Old Bay <laughs> that just doesn't wash off. Yeah. You know, it just sticks around. But honestly, like he crushed it. I don't know. It took a fucking Frenchman to show me how to eat crabs like a civilized person. Oh, really? A Frenchman showing oh, up a yeah. Marylander? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, he was like, okay, you know, how do I pull this bad boy apart, basically? Once he knew how, he, like, had a tiny fork, and he was, like, very efficient and very clean. <laughs> yeah. I was just, like, making a fucking mess, cutting my hands everywhere. He was like, I thought this was going to be, like, chaos, but, you know... It was actually great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is surprising. It's because you're so fucking civilized. Shit, dude. I knew people from like Pennsylvania that when they came down or something and went to a crab feast, they were like, oh, oh, what do I do? Dude, that's how I felt. They were like I mean, eating the first shells time, and shit. The first time I went to my husband's family's house for crabs, I looked at him like, I don't fucking know. Like, you gotta. Really? I under, like, this is not something that I did with my family. You guys like, didn't eat crabs growing up in Maryland? Not like, I mean, we would get, like, crab legs and, sh like, we were more of, like, crab cake people. Yeah. But we didn't usually get, like, whole crabs. Like the steamed, yeah. Yeah. Like, covered in Old Bay and shit. And, you know, that's not my mom's favorite thing anyway. But, you know, always like crabs, always like crab legs, always like crab cakes, all that shit. But yeah, I did not know how to break a crab apart because I probably had never actually done that in my life. Like I had opened yeah. crab legs, but I'd never like fucking broke open a crab. Right, clean the and intestines And so I was out. fucking, yeah. yeah, I was freaking out, embarrassed. <laughs> like I'm from here and I have no idea what I'm doing. They're all, and it's like they're, you know, a Maryland family. Like they're all right. sort of born and raised here. My family was not. <laughs> Yeah, but you so, were. That's how, like, yeah, yeah, my family I was, was. But, like, they weren't, so, like, it wasn't, uh, like, it, it, I don't think it was, like, that important to them when I was growing up, just because it wasn't, like, part of their, their growing up experience, you know? Yeah. That's what I said. I just assumed everybody did, because, like, when I was, like, seven, eight, my grandfather taught me how to do all crab-related shit, like catch them steam them hold them that's the thing though like we have yeah. we've always had mallets and shit so we must have done it it's like you, know? you must have and have, i just yeah. don't remember plus in like in like maryland mallets and stuff like that listeners that don't know or aren't familiar with like maryland kind of crab feast as we're describing them right now it's like uh if i think it's just like something people give us like gifts like it's just like oh here's a crab mallet like a little stupid like gift shop like crab yeah mallet that's that what says, they're bringing like, back to yeah they're bringing some back for gifts right but uh yeah and like when you get them it's like that was a weird thing good. when i lived in louisiana because it was like they still did they did like stuff like crab feast with like shellfish and stuff like one they always yeah. boiled them which being a maryland yeah guy, i was gonna I was say like, they were doing like a boil yeah. yeah steaming is my like shrimp crab all that i prefer it steamed just because i guess that's what i grew up with but then boils yeah. fine but you got to season the shit out of the water because yeah. otherwise you're boiling all the flavor out and then like yeah. you know there, there's not like i don't know it was 
I learned how to eat different kind of shellfish for it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. My dad found some deal that was like, get two dozen, get a dozen free. Right. And my parents are not going to eat the leftovers. So now I have like almost a dozen crabs sitting in my fridge that nice. I guess I'm going to figure out eating tonight. Oh, yeah. Even though like my hands are all fucked up. You can either eat them cold or just pick them clean and then use the meat in like a pasta or something. Or, like, yeah, that's different. what I was thinking. But either way, like I got to deal with it <laughs> you know? yeah. or I got to freeze them. Like I got to figure out what to do with them. I think I just like have a bag of corn. Nice. A bunch of ears of corn. It just feels so. It's like, oh my god, does this fit in my fridge? Nice. Speaking of sea animals. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. Racist whale, dude, is what it is. Yeah, Yeah, it's a racist as shit whale. Yeah, dude. All right. So, yeah, I guess we'll get to it here. All right. Well, this is another episode of Heavy Board. I'm Andrew Wittstadt. I'm a fucking whale. (laughs) And today we're doing Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick. Moby Dick. Uh, Housekeeping real quick, because I always forget to mention this. I'm going to try to do it in the beginning for these next couple episodes. Uh, we are looking for workshop horror stories. If you were in any type of art workshop where, you know, you're sitting around a room and people say things about your work, uh, we want to know about the bad things that happened. <laughs> Send us an email at heavyboardpodcast.gmail.com. Uh, we'd like to start a segment where we go into that. That'll be a lot of fun and commiserate with you guys, all the listeners out there. Uh, Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash heavyboard. For just a couple bucks a month, you get access to our entire catalog. If you can't afford that, you don't want to do that, you can support us by subscribing on various platforms, whichever one you choose. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us that way. Share it online. Uh, Leave us a five-star review. Plenty of ways to support us that don't involve spending money. So have at it, guys. Send us your workshop horror stories again at heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And that's housekeeping. All right. Moby Dick. And, like, I have... I took a couple notes on this. Like, like I don't have as many notes on this one as um, I do oh. for some of the other ones. But mainly because I found this book hard to read. I found it boring. Uh, well, it takes a lot of effort to read, for sure. And I, as you know, you know, was, like, struggling to get through it because I was just drowning in other work. But... Um, yeah, I'm in the same boat. It's slow going, and we talked about this on Virginia Woolf episode, where, like, part of it being slow... I mean, one, this is a long book, right? But, like, the prose styling takes a while to read, because it's a lot of modified on top of modified sentences, where you have strained thoughts that pop in, that pop in, that pop in, and then, you know, throughout the whole sentence type thing. So, in my brain, at least, like, that takes 
a little bit of time. Like that takes a little bit of time to like. Well, yeah, and the prose is also like kind of beautiful. Like whether or not we like it (laughs) before we even get there. um, I thought that the prose was like beautiful, and it has a lot of moments that whether or not I cared about what was happening in the book, I thought that there were moments that were just so beautifully written and almost like, you know, just sounded like poems to me. Um, yeah, well, I want to talk but about that. That, that makes yeah. it really, um, it's really dense to get through. Um, and because, you know, we were also pushing through it, we are not going to be able to parse it at like the level that we might do with other books. Not to say that we do with all of them, but there's so, so, so much in this book that you can explore that we will not. This is heavy so. board, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah honestly, when you brought that I, up, you know, I found yeah. With like the the, the prosy kind of style, because when I was listening to some Bloom lectures on this, he claims that it's yeah, it's more a prose poem than it is a novel. Moby Dick. Oh is yeah. What he claims. I have a few questions it's, about that. At, like we get to at some point, but I mean, there are moments that like the ends of chapters straight up rhyme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was, but, like, really well done. Like, really beautifully written. Um, And and it made me think of, like I said, I brought up Virginia Woolf. Sorry. (laughs) What did you say? I was just saying, like, however boring it is. Yeah. Beautifully written. And the reason I brought up Virginia Woolf, and uh, honestly, I got a Joyce vibe, too, because I just, a couple months ago, went through all of Joyce's uh, works, and... uh, Obviously, Wolf and Joyce are, are much later than, uh, you know, about like 50 years after this book, <laughs> like is when they were starting to publish. But uh, you can feel it, right? Like they were clearly very influenced by Melville or just that kind of style of writing from that time in like the 19th century. Uh, the Just the prose stylists that were like the masters of the craft at the time. Like uh, there, there really is no comparison, as Sophie was saying. There's just... Yeah, the sentences are so complex and so beautiful and like that you you really have to admire it for that, you know. And we'll get to like, you know, the how's this in the canon, where we think it is in the canon, why is it so like praise in the canon. Culturally, this is so ingrained into our into us that I mean, people just refer I was watching fucking MasterChef, dude, because I love Gordon Ramsay, you know. So I'll I'll watch all the Gordon Ramsay shows where he yells at people for like their bad dishes. I love it. But, like, uh, somebody, it was, like, a guest judge or something, some big chef came in, and she said, like, oh, you know what my white whale is? Like, that's, and I was just, <laughs> like, we had just finished reading Moby Dick here for this pod, and I was, like, <laughs> it's everywhere. Like, it is yeah. so ingrained into the culture. People just, oh, my, people that have never read this book just know what it's about. They know the white whale references. They know how to use it in a sentence like white whale, my white whale, like the Ahab references. Everybody uses these like all the time. It's so ingrained into our culture now that like, and that, I mean, we'll get more in depth to this as we kind of move along, but like, I'm just very fascinated by that. Like the cultural impact of a book that I read and didn't quite have the same reaction that I would like when I read like a Shakespeare or something, you know, like there is just something like not that like, you know, I'm going to be, oh, it shouldn't be in the canon or something or we shouldn't hold it up as highly as we do. Like, I don't really care about stuff like that, but it's I didn't get 
the same kind of in awe feeling that I get when I read some of what we call, you know, some of the older books that we hold up as the greatest or great things that were written before we were born. It's like Shakespeare, uh, some of the Wharton stuff I've read. Again, Wharton's, you know, like 50 years later here. Twain, some of this stuff that I, you know, you read from this similar time period. And uh, yeah. it just didn't hit me as deeply as that. And, you know, that's just a personal thing, right? Somebody could read this, like Bloom calls it a masterpiece. And he sp- that lecture I watched very eloquently, as always, Bloom is very eloquent, like praised the book, made you be like, made me question, be like, oh, why do I not get the same feeling that he did from this? Like, why was I well, more bored? Like, uh, Yeah, I think I would feel much more engaged if I were breaking it up into like three sections and like having a discussion about it that's led by someone who really knows their shit better than I do. I mean, especially for a book that leans so heavily on like religious tropes, right? Like that's something that Bloom is really steeped in. Um, and something that he can speak really um, easily to. Right. And I think having that kind of um, lens as you're reading, even if you don't have that knowledge, so like having someone there who's like guiding your discussion is really helpful. So like if you don't read this book in a class with like a good teacher, I, like I can see why so many people end up not reading it, you know, without that. Um, yeah because it is hard it's hard there's so much to try to wrap your head around in every fucking sentence that it's you will um miss a lot reading it on your own that doesn't mean you shouldn't read it you know um there were still parts i really enjoyed in the absence of uh some kind of guide there were parts where i had to spend a lot of time looking things up you know, and then there were a lot of parts where I just gave up looking things up because I was just trying to get through this lengthy book. Yeah. Um, and it is like, it's a task. Like, unless you are somebody, if you're reading this in a class or a grad, grad program or some grad school or something like that, uh, it is a task. Like, this isn't a book that you can read in a couple of days and move on. Like, it is, it took me a couple of weeks, took Sophie a, f- a few weeks. Way too long. It, <laughs> and and it is like it's not casual reading i guess is what we're trying to say like yeah. it's not something that you can just pick up and uh or maybe you can you know we don't want to discourage anybody from reading the few people that still yeah i mean like, like shit you yeah. might be a great reader and way smarter than me in which case go for it <laughs> um and again like you should read it it's great to you know have that in your wheelhouse but yeah, it's not something that I would rush your reading of. Do that, not do what I did. And like <laughs> like you said, like it's great to have read. Like that's the main reason I put it on this list and the main reason I wanted to purchase and own a copy and read it because I had never had to read it. I had never been assigned it in a class. And it's so ingrained to the culture, to our history, to every type of pop culture reference and things like that. Like it's still being like, this book is 150 years old plus. So it's not even more than that. Right. It's like 170 years old now. And we still reference it. We still reference the white whale, i.e. the big desire, the thing that we can't get that we all want type of thing. So it's still used in that type of metaphor. So I was like, you know what? Like I'm going to fucking read this. Like I want to read this book and just, just to be like, all right, I've read it. Like 
Everybody else just kind of pretends to read this or you don't even need to because it's so ingrained in the culture. You already know the plot basically, right? Like, you know, the plot, not like all the minor details and all that stuff, maybe not names, but like, you know, the general idea. And I maybe, maybe our generate like the page master, you know what I'm talking about? That uh, Macaulay Culkin movie in the nineties. It's like half animated and uh, you know, Moby Dick is one of the big storylines in that. So like, I think a lot of my yeah. knowledge of it came from that maybe like being like a nineties kid and like see watching that movie. That was one of my favorite movies as a kid, not just because yeah, it was Macaulay books. Culkin really even... freaked me out as a kid. Yeah. Just it was just fun. Kind it of was well done. His shit. Yeah. Page master underrated. If you haven't go see it, is it a Disney movie? Maybe. I don't even know. I don't fucking know. Yeah. Like I said, he freaked me out as a kid. So I kind of avoided him. It was just like pale, you know, Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. He's, yeah. He looks the same as he did then, so now he's just like a permanently weird looking adult, like yeah. heroin chic forever. Yeah. All right, we haven't even gotten to the books yet, uh, but yeah, my version, we did read a slightly different version of this, although I think the, the texts are, are like kind of the original authoritative texts, because they're in my introduction, which is the Wordsworth Classics. Listeners have heard me say this before. If you're looking for just like a cheap copy paperback with a def- authoritative text, like Wordsworth Classics is the way to go. Like it's a couple bucks and you get a nice, you know, not great bound book or anything. It's just a little cheap paperback, but like it's a good way if you're broke as fuck like we are to be able to like enjoy and own a classic text. So the page numbers might be a little bit off with ours. What version did you have, Soph? Yeah, I have the Penguin Classics edition. Penguin Classics, same thing, but usually just a little yeah. bit more pricey. Although I think you got expensive. yours. Did you get yours used? But I, mine was, I didn't pay for this one because it was my sister's. Oh, so. nice, nice. The best way to get books when they're just given to you for free. Yeah. But, you know, maybe you can hit some free little libraries around your town. If you live in a semi-affluent area, you might find a copy of Moby Dick. Or you just go to your local library. Yeah, (laughs) you can go to a library. But I like to—I live in a pretty affluent area of the city I live in. (laughs) There are little libraries all over the place, so I try to hit those once in a while. When did that become a thing? Like these little kind of fake libraries that people put out, like a birdhouse with books in it. And I mean, yeah, I fucking love it, dude. It's been great. I mean, like... I've never I've been... actually encountered one in real life, but, like, I oh, see man. posts go viral all the time on, like, book oh, Twitter. Oh, God, they're and... all over my parents' neighborhood, so we've donated a lot of books that they were getting rid of, and, like, I mean, that's how I just got a free copy of, um, fucking, what is it? The Goldfinch, Donna mm-hmm. Tart. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've gotten a bunch of books that, like, I'm excited to have. Um, and some that are like in really good condition and some that are new and like that, you know, would be like $14 to get used at this point. Cause they're, that's how new they are. Um, there is this, I mean, w- honestly, yeah. like I like there are books that like, I'm kind of coming to terms with the idea of like letting go of cause I'm a hoarder and I think like, yeah, I could, I could probably give some of these away. Yeah, it is a strange phenomenon here. Like I, I'm get like I like the idea of libraries and like you know, uh, knowledge for everybody type thing and these vast archives. But then I always kind of struck with like the kind of you know in this world like in our kind of circles and like 
everybody's always like, oh, I'm too broke to like buy books or <clears throat> buy this journal or subscribe to this journal or or subscribe to this podcast, listeners, all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, yeah, man, but like somebody's got to support it. <laughs> like, I mean, if you like yeah. books, like you want books to keep existing, well, like you need to buy them. Like, so, you know, what do they call it? Like literary citizenship. Like if you want journals, you like journals, like you need to subscribe like the $20 a year and oh, support yeah, it. Dude. Like, I mean, there are journals that like, if first of all, it would be awful for me. Like I want to subscribe to like a few journals, but it would be bad for me because it would just be stacks and stacks of journals in my apartment that I would be like, am I ready to get rid of this? Oh, I haven't read this one yet. And most journals are pretty yeah. bad, too. Like, even when you get yeah. them in the mail, there's, like, one or two good things in there worth reading and everything else. I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, rolling my eyes, kind of. Um, it, that's the other know. thing. Because people mostly are going to, like, you know, people like us, for example, that, like, can't afford to um, be subscribers for a lot of journals, you know. And, and like, that's maybe the nice thing about, like, certain submissions like you do get a free round of their journal sometimes like if you submit to a particular journal or magazine or if you submit to one of their contests and that's cool um but it is likely going to be you know the uh poetry magazine or something right it's <coughs> gonna be the big biggest names and not like the little guys that probably need the most support um, but it's the, if we're being entirely honest, it's like those bigger names that are going to be most reliable in terms of the content that they put out. Even if it's like not the best, it's like easier to, um, have some sense of who the editors are, right? They're easier to find. Um, but yeah, that's not that important, but yeah, Moby Dick. Yeah, man. So support if you like books, if you like literature, if you're an aspiring writer, want to be in this world. Well, how do you expect people to buy books if you're not going to do it? Kind of thing. So, yeah, we always encourage people to do that. Be good literary citizens. All right, but let's get to the fucking book here. Yeah, I don't even have that many chapters that are like important to me. Um, but the ones that are, I, I mean, but, oh, I don't remember, but the first part of the book I found myself, like, really kind of invested for the first several chapters and, like, kind of interested, although I was starting to get frustrated when I realized, like, this book is 99% narration, and... For the first several chapters, it feels like no detail is left unspoken. Yeah, I also enjoyed the first few chapters. It was around chapter nine. I started to get a little bit bored. I felt myself being a little bit bored. But before that, even, dude, the Hawthorne inscription. What do we think? So he says in the beginning of this book, uh, it was dedicated to Hawthorne. Hawthorne and Melville were, fr were friends. I think there's a, a an archive of letters back and forth for people that are interested somewhere out there on the internet. I'm sure you can find it. Uh, in a token of my admiration for his genius, this book is inscribed to Nathaniel Hawthorne. What do we think of that? Yeah, so I haven't read Nathaniel Hawthorne. I don't think I have either. 
So I think that's something that I would need to investigate further. Like we have to get some Nathaniel Hawthorne on our list, see what that influence is about. But I imagine, I mean, you said that, that you, I didn't um, look into it. You said they were friends, like they knew each other. Yeah, it was in an introduction to my copy with Wordsworth. There's a nice introduction by... Uh, fuck. Uh, Keith Carabine, <laughs> maybe. What is the name? I have Andrew Delbanco. Yeah, I was too. I was too short on time to really get deep into the introduction, so I just did not. Oh no, the introduction is David Hurd. Sorry, in my edition. But yeah, whatever, you know, sometimes they, they'll get some scholar to do, like, a really detailed introduction. Parts of it were very boring to me, but that I found interesting. They were kind of friends, so no doubt Hawthorne had read some of this manuscript, probably gave notes, etc. So. It's always interesting to me to see, like, what authors were, like, in conversation with each other, like, in real life. Not just, like, through their work, but, um, you know what circles they ran in is always interesting. I think we, that tends to be easier to see in retrospect, obviously, because, you know, I don't know if they were necessarily popular at their time. Do you know if they were famous um, when they were alive? Melville was famous and so was Hawthorne. Yeah. But, you know, the story goes is that Moby Dick was a flop. Right. Uh, and he wrote this apparently very quickly. He wrote this in about a year and a half, I think. Jesus. And uh, it was during a time when I think he was very productive and he wrote a couple other stuff. I haven't read much of Melville. I'll say this just for this. Like, I'm not a big Melville guy. The things I've read of his, like, like Bartleby the Scrivener, everybody talks about in, like, literary circles. I had to read that for a class in undergrad and maybe I should revisit it now like a decade later but uh, I wasn't a fan of that one either I'm just not a huge fan of Melville I just but again like the teacher I had for that class like loved Melville so Bloom loves Melville a lot of scholars like Melville yeah. but I don't <laughs> I'm not a big fan of his style I don't know what it is something about it but yeah, the very beginning, we have the, the famous first line, call me Ishmael, very first sentence, right? So if you're ever in a Jeopardy question, the first lines of text, call me Ishmael, very famous first line of a novel. Yeah, and chances are you probably already knew that. Yeah. Oops. Even if you haven't read I the just... book, you knew that probably, yeah. Yeah, very famous first line. Um, I was really interested uh at, obviously it's the first page i was really still invested in this moment wasn't too tired yet it was a nice break from work and ishmael is like when i started reading these first couple of chapters one of my notes it is funnier than i expected yeah um ishmael is pretty humorous particularly when he's on the land still not at the not on the yeah. boat 
that humor goes away a little bit, I guess. And if we're supposed to take with that is like some type of, you know, things are more serious because they're on this boat. They could die at any minute type thing. But yeah, I didn't mind the first couple chapters when he meets Queequeg. Yeah, so Queequeg, um, really endearing character, especially for like the first, I don't know, how how far in would you say? Maybe like the first like quarter of the book? Yeah, the first particularly like endearing. 60 pages or so and you start learning about like his kind of religion and then like their friendship that they like blossom and then him like getting put and like and honestly when they're even on the ship like Queequeg is like kind of a a, a noble hero character right like he's saving people yeah. that have fallen overboard risking his own life uh what that scene where the guy slips into the whale and then oh, the, the yeah that was pulleys my... give way and the whale's sinking to the bottom with this guy inside of it and Queequeg like dives in after him and saves him like cuts the whale open as it's sinking to the bottom of the ocean so yeah. you know heroic type shit like that's like hero type like yeah type and thing. he becomes you know very quickly becomes like best buddies with ishmael and they decide like that they're gonna try to go boating together right like they're gonna try to be on the same boat because he's just like in this uh well they meet at this like inn Right, where there's a bunch of other like whaling guys that are all going to be looking to join um, various ships. Yeah. That like take off from because I guess it's supposed it starts at Nantucket, right? Like they're on like the coast of New England in like whaling. They don't towns. start at Nantucket, but they're like uh, they're close, right? They they start somewhere like the New um, England whaling towns. Yeah, um, I don't remember where it was. But yeah, they start somewhere near there and then make their way to Nantucket and that's where they leave from. Yeah, one thing I did notice like while reading this and, and parts of this that were boring, I think the parts that were the most boring were, um, like I said, right around chapter nine, I start to get a little bit boring and like I get the Jonah and the whale kind of set up that is happening throughout this and they take on... You know, Melville takes a lot of pages to set that up with like the sermon and stuff in chapter nine, the kind of like rogue priest that has this little chapel for yeah. only like, you know, whalemen, the kind of people that go out on boats for years and then may or may not come back kind of thing. Uh, so I get all that, but I was just like, uh... it was just a tonal shift, I thought, because it was very funny and humorous with like, you know, Ishmael meeting Queequeg and then kind of discovering the kind of rough, rough and tumble, like men that work these fishing boats and then like having to kind of find his place there. And, and then yeah, and it's very like the humorous. Organization almost, of it. Yeah. Almost and anthropological, like, like in the humor kind of. And who, you know, is sort of at the top of the uh, chain of command and who's sort of at the bottom at least in terms of like how they get paid all this stuff there's this line and uh, toward the beginning it's in the first chapter I think where he talks about not minding being ordered around by captains and says who ain't a slave tell me that well then 
However, the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is all right, that everybody else is one way or another served in as much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is. And so the universal thump is passed round, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. That's also yeah. like a really funny sentence to me, and so the universal thump is passed round. Yeah, that's what I highlighted the passage right after that. Again, I always go to sea as a sailor because they make a point of paying me for my trouble, whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I ever heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay, and there is all the difference in the world between paying and being paid. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was very, like, humorous, and he's, like, yeah, kind of in this town that he hadn't been in before, but he knows he wants to get on a ship. He's got some sailing experience. Not so much whaling experience, but, like, sailing. They make yeah. that kind of clear. So, like, and then, yeah, I just Yeah, that. that's the thing, right? He's never been, yeah, he's never done a whaling voyage, he, right? He went as a merchant sailor. Merchant so sailor. And I can't remember if there were, like, references to him, like, doing, like, small fishing, ex like, stuff that doesn't take as long, yeah. just, like, dropping nets, or I guess they did. Or they maybe, like, isn't then. as dangerous, or yeah. as quite as dangerous as whaling. So, yeah, there is a lot throughout here that is, like, specifically just, like, about whaling and whale anatomy and how it works that we will probably not talk about. <laughs> I mean, you can. You will talk about it. For what? I kind of those chapters there are a lot of chapters that are just like about whaling and by about whaling i mean dive into like whale anatomy specifically and like how you break the whale down and the history of whaling yeah there's a lot historical of historical references to whaling yeah. like there's so much of it there's a lot of chapters, and this this is part of what makes it kind of a drag to read for me. Was yeah, there was a lot of chapters where it's just explaining whale anatomy, just explaining, yeah, processing whales, explaining ship anatomy, like how like the ropes and lines on a ship, a whale ship, are tied together and how you use them. And I guess that that matters a little bit in the story. You could argue. Uh, because it does because I like <clears throat> I had to skip some of these chapters as we know right um, and there were moments where I was like confused and had to go back and look things up and like find the chapter where that was addressed <sighs> and read a passage from it um, so yeah if like you were hard pressed and you would just like really wanted to know what the story of Moby Dick was so here's the thing you'll miss a lot of what the book actually is but you could ostensibly read like the first several chapters and the last several chapters and have all of the book that involves most of the action. Yeah. But you will uh, lose a lot. Well, um, you could yeah, I mean we could cut those those chapters down if you really wanted to, but it is it was informative in some ways for me as I read through it with uh like I texted Sophie about this. I was like, "Damn, no wonder we stopped wailing." Like <laughs> Not just because people were like, well, it's inhumane, uh, but uh, because we developed kerosene. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so crazy. I was like, God, like, no wonder, like, as soon as we invented, like, something that other than whale oil for fuel, uh, like, processing crude oil and getting the kerosene, 
Uh, and that was what, 1860s? 1870s when kerosene started to be used instead of like whale oil or uh, stuff in like lamps and all that and uh, you know for those that don't know you the John the Rockefeller family right standard oil that was their first big thing it wasn't gasoline that didn't exist yet it was kerosene yeah. and gasoline was a byproduct of making kerosene and all that and Vaseline, all this stuff, all came out of standard oil and their processing of crude oil. But yeah, that was kind of like, God, just so insane. Like the, <laughs> like how you would catch a whale in the ocean. I mean, it is, it is like really fucking insane. <laughs> catch this giant fucking animal. Like dude, I mean, this, when like, you think about the idea whale. that like. They could chop off a head and a person could fall into it. Like, yeah. it's just a totally obscene thing for us to think about. That's what I mean, the two-ton whale. And they do a good job of explaining this, like, in the or Melville does with this, uh, you know, in the scenes when they're harpooning the whales. And then the boats, you know, you harpoon the whale and it fucking drags the boat, like, because it's a two-ton fish. I guess it's not technically a fish, right, most whales? Yeah. Uh, but, like two-ton fucking animal that just starts dragging a little skiff boat with full of like 10 men like through the ocean water till it gets too tired and bleeds out like that's how you fucking catch a whale <laughs> and then just yeah. drag it back like tow it back and then hang it up on the end of a ship so that it makes the ship swing to one side because it's so fucking heavy and then cut it piece by piece piece by piece that's like the crazy part to, like yeah I mean, some of what he was explaining with that was pretty wild. I also get lost in understanding, like, when it's... Is Ishmael the narrator the whole time? Or, like, it seems to switch, right? It switches back and forth between, like, a narrator and Ishmael. Yeah, Bloom talks about that a little bit. And he talks about Ishmael as a narrator who, like, comes in at different points and then sometimes he'll just disappear entirely. Like... And, yeah, and, I mean, there's a part where the narrator, you know, literally says, I'm going to pass it over, <laughs> basically, to Ishmael. I surrender to him now. You have to listen to him talk. There are parts, particularly conversations between the captain Ahab and the mates, where, like, you know, Ishmael isn't there. Like, he wouldn't right. be able to hear this, but we still get it type thing. So there are, like, the narrator is very flexible, which, you know, there are no hard and fast rules for this type of shit. So a writer could do that and, you know, whatever. Like, you can, as long as it still works, you know, you can you can make the narrator come in and out. But Yeah, and it does, and it's difficult. Like, I mean, you know, I would say the further you get into this book, the more difficult it gets and the more, like, the stranger it becomes. Like, there are a lot of, um, like, isn't there, (laughs) isn't there a chapter that's just like a, it's sort of like a play? Um, Yeah, and that's what made me think a little bit of Joyce and stuff, because Joyce was doing that in his last couple books, uh, really playful with John Ulysses and um you know uh, Finnegan's Wake and like you know yeah so you um, can see that they're like taking the play format and, and playing with it in a novel form you know uh do you want to talk about the gay shit before we go to uh oh yeah well I mean uh, I guess <laughs> I mean are we calling it gay shit <laughs> I don't think I, I think we've determined it. it's it's not gay shit. It's just like a humorous 
way to talk about a male bond. So when, uh, gay shit. (laughs) Yeah, so early on, we're at the Sprouters Inn, I think. Yeah, the Sprouter Inn. So this is where Ishmael goes to find lodging while he's waiting to, you know, go... Uh, I guess travel to Nantucket where he's going to um, try to get on a ship Um, he's looking for a place with a bunch of other you know whaling types because he's trying to get in with that crowd he goes to this inn and there isn't really a room for him except for uh, one lodger who lives there Uh, who has not returned and is described well he's not quite described I guess he's um, basically Ishmael is told by the innkeeper well you can you know share a bed with this guy and he tries to get all comfortable and like he's like fuck that I'm not doing that I'm gonna try to get comfortable here in like you know the bar room or something fails to do that finally goes up to bed and gets all freaked out when Queequeg enters, who is like, you know, appears to him as what is described as a, like, savage, I guess, right? Um, Yeah, he's from the islands around, like, kind of the central and south, like, uh, right, like the Caribbean islands is what we know him as today. I forget which, where, where. Yeah, I don't remember. Anyway, the, the same idea, like one of these kind of islands that are around the kind of Central America but he's area. like tattooed. Um, they describe him as a, a, a cannibal. Yeah, yeah. They said the culture is cannibal. Um, and he's of royal and, blood from that island and like and that is entitled he, to like, be an emperor there or something. You know, tries to like what he like sells men's heads. That's that's what they say. uh, It's (laughs) up in the air, but like that's you know everybody's scared of him because he's like a guy from an island where they like you know cannibalize people in rituals and things like that. And like this was the time, right? Keep in mind historical context. Like we had, it's only been about like what like a hundred, well I guess two hundred years at that point where we'd be kind of going back and forth from what we would call the New World, like the islands, what we call the Caribbean now, kind of like those islands that were all colonized by uh, the British, the French, the Dutch, like, you know, Spanish, all the people, all the European uh, empires that came over and colonized those islands. So there's like that that aspect to it. So keep in mind the context. But yeah, they describe it as like a savage uh, thing because again, it wasn't like Western or whatever, eating other people and things like that. It's a big taboo, right? As we all know in Western culture, but there are many cultures that still do that. <clears throat> I guess, yeah, not so. Uh, Why do but I they keep are thinking the isolated. Congo? Yeah. Oh, he has that idol. Oh, right, I don't know yeah. that that's where he's from, but he has this idol that's, um, yeah. So it, it there's some illusion that maybe like he's South American. Maybe. Yeah, I don't remember. But either way, he like, you know, is clearly a religious guy not christianity which you know is kind of important in this book yeah and alienates a lot of the people in the in new england who were christian or presbyterian or some form of uh, or quaker right there's also the quaker element um and all those were at odds with each other right you don't go to a quaker church if you're episcopalian and you don't go to yeah that kind of thing 
and that was you know much more important than to people than it is today although i guess some people are still find that but yeah, the, yeah the, but... like the the stuff about like um because sophie and i were texting about this and it was like queequeg and ishmael like uh sharing a bed in there well because was... they make a point of being very funny about it and making some you know jokes about this being like two men laying in bed together and like queequeg has his arm around ishmael and it's uh and he talks about like how nice it is and like oh it's almost like you know you would think it was my wife that i was like holding hands with right now and it's like really funny and like but there is like this i don't know this sense of like a real genuine like bond between these guys and there's this moment of like this is still in the beginning of their relationship where they're not like super good friends yet or anything so they're just like laying there together they're sharing this bed uh he's scared of queequeg right ishmael is scared of queequeg so he wakes up and he's kind of like freaked out and he's like oh shit but then queequeg is like he gets up and he like it's really funny he like goes i think under the bed to like put his shoes on or something like he changes basically into clothes and then leaves the room so that Ishmael can change in privacy. And so like there's this, I don't know, there's this maybe playing with like, you know, some kind of like homosocial relationship, but it's not, you know, gay in any way. It's not like, it's not gay. I'm not. <laughs> It's just, it's really tender and it's like funny, but it grows into something that is quickly becoming like, oh, these guys are like best friends now. Yeah, the passage I highlighted is the last paragraph in chapter 10 where uh, Ishmael says, How it is I know not, but there is no place like a bed for confidential disclosures between friends. Man and wife, they say. They are open the very bottom of their souls to each other, and some old couples often lie and chat over, t over old times till nearly morning. Thus then, in our heart's honeymoon, lay I and Queequeg, a cozy, loving pair. Yeah, they're so sweet. Yeah, well, so if it, yeah, like the gay, like, and I think this is a result of like a lot of the queer theory stuff that started, you know, like 30, 40 years ago, where a lot of people argue of the homosexuality and all that kind of stuff when uh, all male bonding and camaraderie, according to, uh, again, like the kind of orthodoxy of queer theory is, you know, queer and or gay type of uh and it's just a misguided thing, I think, especially at a time when it was common for men, people to share beds like this because there weren't enough, right? There wasn't like a fucking mattress warehouse. Uh, you had to make the mattresses. If there weren't enough beds, you would sell them to people for half price or something to share a room, whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we don't have to get into that. Yeah, well, I mean, there's this whole passage where he says, you know... Um, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. The soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies or bland deceits. Wild he was, a very sight of sights to see. Yet I began to feel myself mysteriously drawn towards him. 
and those same things that would have repelled most others. They were the very magnets that thus drew me. I'll try a pagan friend, thought I, since Christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy. I drew my bench near him and made some friendly signs and hints, doing my best to talk with him meanwhile. At first, he little noticed these advances, but presently, upon my referring to his last night's hospitalities, he made out to ask me whether we were again to be bedfellows. I told him yes, whereat I thought he looked pleased, perhaps a little complimented. So, like, yeah. there, you know, there's also, like, a lot, again, of gesture toward religion, right? And sort of the ills of religion in particular, I would, I would say. Um, yeah, and when I watched that Bloom lecture, uh, we'll link it here, listeners. It's on YouTube. If you just search like Harold Bloom, Moby Dick, it'll pop up. And it's yeah, like, it's uh, like the only one you'll probably and realistically it, find. It was kind of towards the end of his life. He seemed very old in like the uh, the lecture when he was, you know, he wasn't as fast talking and and stuff. He's much slower. But uh, yeah, there's that. You you could take a look at that. Those are good. That's good stuff. But but. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean that that I don't know what the fuck I was going to say. Uh the religion stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, the religious stuff and and there's like that level of um Ishmael at first is like trying to like convert, like teach um Queequeg and then eventually like resigns to not right like starts to understand where Queequeg is coming from and Bloom talks about this in the lecture that's why I brought it up because uh, I know it doesn't seem like it by today's standards right like there he calls Queequeg a savage things like that people that would say are racist you know kind of tropes now by today's standards uh, Melville was you know a liberal essentially like and Bloom talks about that when he compares them to Whitman and stuff like they were American liberals at the time basically so they were very into yeah freedom of religion and things like that like all the religions coming together on this little island on this whaling town like everybody kind of side by side here and uh democracy type stuff you know bloom goes really into that kind of uh i i wonder if that's where that comes from but i think it would maybe not i don't know enough about it but yeah so like that's what melville was right like that's what he was and that, I guess Bloom says that's why this book is so important. You know, whatever you think of it, we like Harold Bloom on this podcast, so we respect what he thinks, even if we disagree with him. Uh, you know. Yeah. You want to talk about Ahab? Ahab. Um, yeah. Ahab what, or what is, you got next? Ahab is like kind of doesn't really come in he's like a mystery until we're on the actual boat, and even then, it's a couple weeks until he uh like shows his face on deck he's like hiding and there's all these legends about him and everybody's kind of scared of him a little bit and he's like really hard nosed and stuff and like thought of as like this crazy guy like so we don't even meet him when ishmael goes to this ship they've made it to you know nantucket they're looking for a ship to get onto. i think they do it from nantucket right I'm not going to find the exact page. Um, and meets the two owners of the boat. And they basically, like, we get the sense of Ahab as, like, a total crazy guy. And there are these two owners of the boat. And one is, like, very 
um, sort of like loud and abrasive and one is like a super religious like Quaker who's just like reading a Bible, I think. Yeah, and if we want to get into it, like I said, in chapter 24 here, there's like a defense, almost like a defense of sailors and whaling because whalers and sailors are looked down upon, right? Cursed like a sailor, et cetera. We have a lot of sayings mm -hmm. that come out of that because if you were working that job, right, when it was literally life or death, you could die at any moment. Like the people that worked those types of jobs, right, were lower class workers types thing. And I think you know, in this sense, going along with like Bloom's theory of it, maybe it influenced me too much. We'll listen to that Bloom, Bloom, Bloom lecture, but it is kind of like a class defense, right? He's like, he's kind of going in there and trying to show the world this rich, this rich community and world of, you know, multicultural like people from all over the world that come to the American and British shores and stuff and French shores to be whalers kind of, you know this that it's a respectable profession and chapter 24 basically spends pages you know arguing uh, that we should respect sailors and whalers and the importance of it and the oil right like in chapter after that he talks about like the oil is like a concoction of kings and queens right it's a very valuable commodity um and that you know if we didn't have sailors well then we wouldn't have any of the oil that we use for all this kind of stuff yeah and well, it's interesting, too, because he also like at the beginning, you know, Ishmael presents himself as something of like a melancholic type, right? Uh, who is like kind of, I mean, like seemingly like just kind of bummed and like depressed and talking about how, you know, like men infallibly will find water to, you know, as a way to help them like create meaning in their lives i don't remember what he says um he refers to the magnetic virtue of the compass and that men find water infallibly um that you know there's a lot of talk of narcissus and you know how we see ourselves in water and there's like you know some complicated imagery of like why we love the water but also this you know i mean i don't think anyone would um try to be or you know a desire to be narciss narcissus right? yeah and then ahab yeah he talks that when they introduce ahab it's like he comes up from the deck after like two weeks like uh it also doesn't bode well if he starts the book saying that they are like you know this character that falls into his own reflection right but that's you know we already kind of know what the story is going to be uh, and then on page, I think uh, my version is page 134, is when Ahab finally mentions the white whale. Give me one second, I gotta plug my laptop in. It's when they, like, see that other ship. And that's when Ahab, like, comes up and is, like, talking to the... It's like they see that other ship and then Ahab comes up from the lower decks and starts, like, talking to the captain of the other ship and be like, have you seen the white whale? And then, like, the guy's like, ah, Moby Dick. Like, all the captains kind of know this legend of this white whale that has, like, harpoons sticking out of its back because every time somebody's tried to capture it, it's just killed them or, in Ahab's case, taken his leg. And then you eventually know what chapter? Meet, uh, 134 is the page, and then chapter 36, I think. Okay. Yeah, chapter 36. Okay, go on. Yeah, but then that's just kind of, you know... 
the first and then like it's like 130 pages in most of the time we've just gotten ishmael and queequeg queequeg's relationship and then we've gotten some like you know education on whales the process how important it is to have these crews go out there and bring back the the oil that we need to make life possible on <clears throat> the mainlands and all that all over the world whale oil was just basically the main source of fuel and then they talk about like perfumes right that there are parts of it that they would take for perfumes parts of it for eating but mostly it was just melting down the fat to make oil and like use that oil to burn fuel and stuff like that yeah and there's this whole thing with ahab he has lost his leg to moby dick so now he's like obsessed right it is moby dick that got his leg right yeah 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 but uh, and then uh, we start to get like stage directions type thing on chapter thirty-seven, page one thirty-nine in my version. Where like in the beginning of the chapter, there'll be like a chapter thirty-seven sunset, and then we have kind of almost stage directions before it starts. The cabin by the stern windows, Ahab sitting alone and gazing out, like almost like it's like a sh- I got like almost yeah. like a Shakespeare vibe because it's like you know oh, you yeah. read a Shakespeare and it's just very sparse stage directions, something like that. Very quiet. They're very very short chapters, so you can almost yeah. think of them as like some of them feel like monologues. Yeah, they are, and no doubt he was inspired by Shakespeare. No doubt Melville was very well read of Shakespeare's stuff and loved it. But then right after that, page 140 in my version, like chapter 38, we start to get like other people's perspectives that just Ishmael. Mm-hmm. So like Ishmael starts to become a little bit more of just like, like we start to get the the first mates and like them kind of questioning Ahab's just not as bad as they do at the end there where they're like kind of going to mutiny against him. But like they're starting to be like, well, hold on a minute. Why are we headed in this direction? Like. We should be chasing, like, the oil, not this fucking white whale that, like, the captain's obsessed with kind of thing. Yeah. And it just kind of starts the whole, like, all right, this is, like, planting the seed. And, you know, yeah. that's well done. Like I said, I'm not, I, don't, I wasn't a huge fan of this book. It kind of bored me at parts, but, like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, it shouldn't be in the canon or it's too stupid and boring. Um, no, not, that's not the point of reading something like this, you know. What yeah. I gonna say? Yeah. The way um, we talked about the play set up. The Bible references are everywhere. Yeah. So, and then, like, also, like, I mean, you talked about racism. We get to in chapter forty-two, the whiteness of the whale, which I would say, like, is one of the big chapters in the book. It was like one of the ones that sort of I, you know, woke up again as I was reading it and being, like, oh yeah, this se- this seems important. Where maybe like not a lot of shits happening, but it seems like maybe an important meditation in the book on you know whiteness as a concept whether in religion or in race or and the way it's like very conflicting and also like very fucked up you mean mean when he's talking about the kings on the islands aside from those more obvious considerations touching moby dick which could not but occasionally awaken in a man, any man's soul some alarm. There was another thought, or rather vague, nameless horror concerning him, which at many times by its intensity completely overpowered all the rest, and yet so mystical and well-nigh well ineffable was it that I almost despair of putting it in a comprehensible form. It is the whiteness of the whale that above all things appalled me. 
but how can I hope to explain myself here? And yet, in some dim, random way, explain myself I must, else all these chapters might be not. And you, you like the terms of like the whiteness is like in curse of like the symbolic use of the color white. Yeah. In terms of like purity, yeah. wedding dresses, kind of the pagan traditions and tr- Christian traditions that like make Greek mythologies. Right. Um, yeah. But then also the way it's used to dictate who sits where in society. Right. Um, the jewels, he talks about pearls, he talks about things. But then he, but then he talks about it in the context of it being haunting in some way. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, like, are we going to deny that, like, pretty much everybody alive at that time was Well, it's interesting racist. that he just, dis- yeah, I mean, <laughs> he also describes were, yeah. the whiteness as a thing that, above all, horrifies him, right? It's right. the most horrible thing about the whale. Not how large and obscene and, like, powerful it is, but that it is the white whale. Um and then he talks about the tigers, polar bears, like all the animals that we know that are kind of fierce. Well, he says, what is it that the albino man so peculi- peculiarly repels and often shocks the eye as that sometimes he is loathed by his own kith and kin? Is it that whiteness which invests him a thing expressed by the name he bears? Right. Uh, the albino is as well made as other men has no substantive deformity and yet this mere aspect of all uh, pervading whiteness makes him more strangely hideous than the ugliest abortion why should this be so yeah yeah nor in quite other aspects does nature in her least palpable but not the less malicious agencies fail to enlist among her forces this crowning attribute of the terrible right so it, it I, it's really complicated. It's not one that I feel like I read with enough depth to really parse. But it does talk about whiteness symbolically and, you know, again, like how in society we use it in a way that symbolizes like purity and goodness and all of this stuff, but also it is horrible and terrifying you know in other respects and in nature in particular right the absence of color in nature he was saying like animals makes them like incredibly terrifying or at least that's like the metaphor going and it is like you know i think we have a tendency to view that term whiteness as the way we use it now but like you know that's I mean, it is somewhat, but I mean, like, it's, it's clearly in not here. what he was talking about. I mean, yeah. there's something of that in here. There is, like, some discussion of race throughout this book. Like, we see it right. later on as well. Well, we I mean, this... in the beginning with Queequeg. Right. But um, this, it's, like, a really um, beautifully written and interesting chapter. And that quote in particular did feel like... It just does signal like, oh, this is an important thing that this book wants to talk about to me. So, and this was like a longer chapter. Like this book is made up of many, many short, short chapters, but this was one of the longer ones. We get through like the Bible references and stuff like that. but uh, And then we get like the whale history. Like we get a lot of chapters of the whale history. I always say like, there's like by page 220 or so in my version here, I was just like okay 
all this whale history and like yeah uh, on chapter 55 on page 219 of the monstrous pictures of whales so like we've had chapter after chapter of basically ishmael if we want to argue it's ishmael narrate basically saying like you know we didn't really have a good anatomy depiction of the whale until just a few years ago because all these kind of stuffy academic types never actually go onto a whale boat they just see the bones and then like make it up basically <laughs> like the drawings and stuff in textbooks and uh you know and he was talking about which ones were good which ones weren't which were the most accurate I'm and not even sure so- that it is Ishmael because I mean I'm just right. thinking about chapter 42 at the whiteness of the whale that's one we see but thou sayest me thinks this white led chapter about whiteness is but a white flag hung from a craven soul thou surrenderest to a hypo Ishmael but I don't know if he's saying I'm so maybe I'm actually misreading this hang on it definitely sounds like we're projecting contemporary versions onto yeah, it, which I think I is what know. people do. Like, that's what I mean. So that's why I just said, like, yeah, using the word as whiteness as we use it today. Did not necessarily. And then there's overlap. You could argue there's overlap. But, I mean, again, keep in mind, this was, like, almost 200 years ago. They were not thinking in terms of critical theory like we are now. <laughs> like yeah, kind no, of but stuff. I'm going to ask a dumb question right now. Do you think where he says this uh, in Chapter 42, it's, this, like, right before the end of Chapter 42... But thou sayest, methinks this white-led chapter about this about whiteness is but a white flag hung out from a craven soul. Thou surrenderest to a hypo Ishmael. Is that Ishmael talking to himself, or is that a narrator talking to Ishmael? Probably Ishmael talking to himself, I would assume. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, we could claim it's something else, but I, I think it's just... No, I think that's, like, the easy way to read it. Again, It would take more work, yeah, to be like, yeah, well, technically I'm... it's his subconscious talking. No, like, no, it's no, like, no. all right. Yeah, I, I didn't even mean it like that. Like, I think I just sort of read it stupidly for a minute. But but my thing with, like, the whale anatomy, we have a lot of sections. There's just, like, this middle section of the book around page 200 or so. We just start getting a lot of whale anatomy, boat anatomy, a lot of the processing of the whales and stuff after they catch the first one you start learning about the processing once they bring it on board or not even on board they tie it to the side so you have this two-ton animal just like hanging to the side of this fucking wooden boat in 1850 or whatever 1851 i guess was when this was published yeah but uh my question was you know the pacing kind of gets thrown off right there because we have about a you know 50 to 100 pages of like just educational kind of material and i was just thinking like what do you know is that needed what does it do for the story so like what are the whale and ship kind of facts explanations do for the story what do we think is it needed i mean if we took that out would we lose something I think we would lose some of like the meditations on whaling and on the way we use whales, what it means to be a whaler. But yeah, I don't know. I was kind of worn out by those chapters. And I don't think they're like, like intensely uninteresting or anything like that. It's not that, but you do like, you know, you get this sort of, um, it's like well you know days weeks months passing you know and you kind of maybe lose a little bit of sight of that as these chapters are rolling on and you're just sort of getting this information 
And there's like a lot of like, you know, philosophy of fish compared to men, humans kind of, or like, yeah, humans. They say men because again, it's 1851, but we all know that means human beings really. Uh, and I, I that kind of started to grate on me a little bit too, because they're comparing, you know, the mightiness of the white whale to like the feeble humans that are trying to hunt it kind of thing. And like the philosophy behind killing that, right. And like taking it and melting it down for oil. Uh, not that that does, like, of course that probably has a place and maybe I'm just like not giving it sure, a fair read as I should, but it's so thorough. And I think, uh, you know, there are ways in which it's interesting, but as somebody who wants to, like, casually read a book that can't, obviously, like, can't just be read casually. Or yeah, not by said, me. Yeah. I'm not that reader. Like, that is not in my, you know, I, I read plenty, but, um, like, I'm also a slow reader. I need to spend time with something like this to digest it to feel like I'm grasping what's going on and yeah that's when I was like really getting worn down and like okay like I need something to be happening because I'm getting kind of this no longer feels like just uh, a pleasurable experience to me and I also again but it also depends on like what else is going on in your life like if you have time to just like sit on a beach and read all of Moby Dick and that's like all you're fucking doing like I'd be happy to do it I'd probably get bored at some points but like I would feel good about having you know sat there and like I would have probably enjoyed a lot of the language when you're like I want a fucking story you're gonna hit those chapters and be like god fucking damn it like I don't want to hear about I think these fucking what, whales. Yeah, that's what made me think of it because that the the large section of like information facts about whales and things uh, comes right after kind of a pretty exciting section, couple chapters where they're chasing that first whale on the boat, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And like everybody, you know, the men are in the boat like hauling the oars. There's like that. What is it? Starbuck. Uh, yeah. Starbuck, who's like really funny with like what he's saying to the men. Like, break your backs, boys. Come on, don't you want that gold? There's some fair Spanish ladies over the horizon. Pull those ropes. You know, like, type of thing. Like, kind of thing. Like, shouting at them. Like, you know, good humor, but also kind of, you know, like, crotchety boat captain kind of first mate giving orders to, like, these men who are exhausted, not sleeping on the boat kind of thing. But I will say, like, so that kind of threw me in the pacing-wise, so I was a little irritated. Be like, oh, come on, you're going to throw off this great little pace as, like, everything, the adventures starting on the boat, basically. But I will say, like, in Melville's defense, and I've already said I'm not a huge fan of Melville. I know, whatever. You know, send in the hate mail. Heavyboard.com slash, Patreon.com slash Heavyboard. But uh, I will say that, like, the flow the way that Melville flows from this factual information in and out of the story kind of chapters as they weave in and out, it's masterful. Like it's yeah. a master writer, clearly, oh, yeah. like clearly a master of the craft who is able to weave in these kind of boring factual areas with the kind of excitement of the story progressing and all that. So, you know, I'm not going to not, you know, everybody has taste. I'm not going to knock skill. It's clearly there. And as I said, like, oh, man, all these people like Melville. I was like, ah. But then again, you know, I hear Harold Bloom always talks about how much he likes Melville. But, like, dude, I love Edith Wharton, and Bloom doesn't like Wharton at all. Like, <laughs> like is very vocal about not liking Wharton. And uh, I'm just like, yeah, okay, well, we disagree on that one. Like, you know. Wait, who dislikes Wharton? Bloom. Oh, uh, yeah, well. 
He had some famous quote where he said, you know, while I can recognize the genius of people like Wharton, I think he doesn't like Dostoevsky and stuff either. He said, I can recognize the genius of writers like that. I don't have to like the books kind of thing. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like he's, yeah. Well, I mean, I also think that's one of the things that we like about Bloom is that he's like, there's an honesty there while we also recognize. And I think it's easy to recognize, like, yeah, like he's going to choose a canon that while... I think he gets a lot of things right in terms of like, yeah, you, you know, it depends on these books that he believes are going to be remembered and like have been shown to be remembered. We also recognize that he has his preferences and I think he recognizes that too. Right. Um, He's not, that's what I mean. Like everybody that has like an issue with somebody's stating opinion about the canon, they're just, you know, they're little crybabies, dude. I mean like, yeah, you're allowed to have opinions about the canon, like in every book, you know, you're not going to like every book that's in there. That's, that's part of it. Like, but at least recognize that we have to have a wide variety of books that aren't going to appeal to everyone or not your particular taste. But like, that's part of having a canon is like, you know, these are the best books of this time period that we know of. You can take them or leave them kind of thing. I'm probably going to leave Moby Dick, but <laughs> I am. But like I said, I'm still fascinated by like the cultural impact the book has had. And I don't know how, I want to talk a little bit about how that happens at the end, but I'm ready to skip ahead to like the kind of final chase. If you are. Uh, yeah, like, I would just say like chapter one, 123. I guess we already talked about the part where like one of the most eventful things that happens in a while in the book doesn't happen until chapter 78 and that's when uh Tashtego falls into the whale head and Queequeg goes and like dives in yeah. like basically naked and yeah like risks his life yeah and like stabs holes in the whale head and like pulls out this guy's leg and then he's like oh no I'm gonna like fuck him up if I pull him out by his legs so then he like goes back in and like pulls him out by his head <laughs> and like like birthing a baby like, and yeah that. yeah it's pretty wild but that was like a fun chapter so like the places where action happens it, it is really fun but yeah let's um move ahead and I didn't watch it. I know there's been a couple different movie versions of this I haven't I didn't watch any of them I should have and like because this would be kind of a great movie yeah. Thing, but you'd have to cut out a lot of fat and do it a little differently than the way the book's set up, kind of thing. So I'd be interested to see. I guess listeners leave it in the comments if you've watched any of the movie versions and which ones you think. Throw it in the comments, you know. Throw it down there. We'll check it out. But uh, yeah. I'm ready to move on. Yeah, we'll move on to like the Starbuck when he starts thinking about mutinying against Ahab. Um, what chapter have, is that? I have chapter 124. 120, 123 to 124, and that's like page 419 to uh, like 422-ish in my version. Yeah, and I think it's maybe worth mentioning, I think it's before before this that we have the is it the, the Percy? What is he called? This like, I don't know. What's his fucking name? Who? The guy who gives the prophecy. Well, the guy on the island at the beginning, the old man. Uh, the one who Ahab brings onto the ship. Like, um, hang on, let me find it. The one captain that lost his arm. Does he lose? Did he lose his arm? I don't remember. It's the guy that he's gonna die later 
Right, but the guy who his name starts with an F. I don't remember. Doesn't well, ring any bells to me. The guy that got cut in half by the rope, or the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He was like the young little boy that like banged the tambourine. Oh right? no, 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 not him. Um, the guy that oh, fuck, hang on, let me find his name. Yeah, dude, we're very well read. Listen, <laughs> this is uh. There's, I mean, there are a fucking shitload of characters to... There's a fuckload of characters, and they all have kind of unusual names. Some of them are like, you know, kind of New England-style names, and other ones, because it is such an eclectic group of people that did this. You know, you have island names and different languages and things like that that are hard for me to pronounce and read type things. So, you know, you did try to be accurate, I guess, in that regard. Is accurate? I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some expert on, like, you know, 19th century whaling that could be like, well, actually, Melville didn't know enough, and maybe that's true, but... You know, it's a fucking story, all right? Yeah, <laughs> like okay, a piece so... Of fiction, like. So they call him the Parsi, right? He's like, a, you know, some Indian descent and described as... I think they describe him as Asian. Uh, mm -hmm. Fadala. Yeah, I don't even remember that character, but yeah. Well, he's the one that was like... Uh, Something about like seeing two coffins or two caskets. He's the one who basically tells Ahab that he predicts he's going to die. Right. I don't remember that at all. Damn. Hang on. Let's do a quick, quick search here. Let's ask quick the internet. Search. Let's ask, ask the, internet. the internet. Go on Wikipedia. Have okay, some autistic so yeah. Fadala's prophecy. Yeah, Fadala also tells him that he, Fadala, will die before Ahab and that only hemp can kill the captain. Ahab takes the latter prophecy to mean that he will be hanged and again thinks his death unlikely to happen at sea. Yeah, I don't remember. I think it happens maybe chapter 117. Yeah. Yeah, 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 okay. Take another pledge, old man. Hang on. Is it sooner? Nah, dude, it yeah, doesn't yeah, matter, yeah. dude. Yeah, he talks about hearses. This is when they have to build Queequeg's coffin. Yeah. Because um, Queequeg gets sick and they have to build a coffin for him on the boat because they're just going to let him float into the ocean. Yeah, this is when they're listening and they think they hear... The sounds of like sirens or something or people dying oh, at sea. The mermaids, yes. Yeah, the yeah, siren yeah. sound, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that is sound cool. like, like the moaning and squadrons over asphaltite, asphaltites. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whatever. Of unforgiving ghosts of Gomorrah ran shuddering through the air. Started from his slumbers, Ahab face to face saw the Parsi and hooped round by the gloom of the night they seemed the last men in a flooded world i have dreamed it again said he of the hearses have i not said old man that neither hearse nor coffin can be thine and who are hearsed that die on the sea but i said old man that ere thou couldst die on this voyage two hearses must verily be seen by thee on the sea the first not made by mortal hands and the visible wood of the last one must be grown in America. He said, hemp only can kill thee. The gallows, ye mean. So he thinks that he's going to be hanged. Yeah, so that's like chapter 117, The Whale Watch. 
where like we get this essentially this prophecy that they're both gonna die and then we come to like this final like a few chapters later we start getting to this final um pursuit of moby dick i want to talk about the the mutiny and yeah, like yeah, especially yeah. the stuff between Starbuck and Stubb, the two first mates yeah. uh, on the uh, the boat, <clears throat> when they start getting the idea to like mutiny, I just you know clearly Melville was inspired by Shakespeare. We've already mentioned that. I mean, all the writers, every fucking writer is inspired by Shakespeare. Okay, but like I did get like very Hamlet vibes at the end of chapter one twenty three. When, when Starbuck, you know, Ahab had threatened Starbuck with the pistol. Yeah. Because he was, like, questioning him or whatever. And then he just, like, those last couple paragraphs, like, just that kind of, like, I kept thinking of that Hamlet scene with the knife. Like, is that a dagger I spy? Kind mm-hmm. of uh, his, like, famous long soliloquy in Hamlet there, you know, about the dagger. Same thing, right? He's like, he would have shot me once, he murmured. Yes, there's the very musket that he pointed at me, that one with the studded stock. Let me touch it, lift it. Strange that I, who have handled so many deadly lances, strange that I should shake so now. Loaded? I must see. I, I, and powder in the pan. That's not good. Best spill it? Wait, I'll cure myself of this. I'll hold the musket boldly while I think. I come to report a fair wind to him, but how fair? Fair for death and doom? That's fair for Moby Dick. It's a fair wind that's only fair for that accursed fish, the very tube he pointed at me, the very one, this one, I hold it here. He would have killed me with the very thing I handle now. Like, And that goes on for a while. Like, this is a long, long paragraph of kind of solo soliloquy, very Shakespeare style, where he's meditating on like the weapon that was threatened with him threatened him with and i was just like yeah that's fucking great <laughs> like it was fucking great i got like the hamlet vibes there and the mutiny oh, yeah. kind of aspect is when the the story the most famous part right this is where it all starts clicking this is the famous shit we all know about like ahab's lost his mind he's obsessed with killing this one whale that's going to be the death of everybody on board they're not going to make any money and they're all going to die essentially so the first mates are kind of like well hey man we didn't sign up to die on this thing like you know, we signed up for that. I just thought it was great. And then you kind of get that, right? They try to mutiny. Ahab goes nuts. And then, yeah, you know how to end, right? They all end up dying going after this whale. And Ishmael's the only survivor. And he manages to float, like, on a barrel or something until he gets picked up by, like, a French ship or something, right? Well, yeah, and they get all of these, like, sort of fucked up omens, right? They meet the Rachel... All these fucking boats that have these, like, really regular names. Um, And that was, like, to me, that was, like, an eventful chapter. Yeah. Like, I mean, I thought that that one sort of Dude, like, the last 60 pages or so of this novel is just boom, boom, boom. Like, it's just start lightning. Like, the pace just accelerates, and you get that final chase. You get the sailors trying to mutiny. You get everybody kind of being unsure, but listening to the captain anyway, because that's, like, the chain of command type thing. And, like, yeah, and then you get the kind of full circle with the Job quote at the end of the ep- at the beginning of the epilogue, right? Because Ishmael's the, the only survival, survivor. <clears throat> the entire ship is destroyed by the whale. They lost all the oil they spent years collecting on this voyage. And they lost it, you know, I think in like the Indian Ocean, right? Is where yeah. they were at that time. They like followed it down there when they were like supposed to be heading back. 
instead and you know everybody dies and that's where the job thing comes in it starts with a quote from the book of job so and i only am escaped alone to tell thee right yeah we get this kind of yeah like the kind of what you would call a christian allegory <clears throat> or some type of tale in that regard or at least allusions to it right yeah but that is you know the big big thing with the cult and this is why i like that like this is what's great about books, right? I mean, like, it becomes a certain thing in a book, a certain line, a certain character, uh, a scene becomes so famous that it just becomes absorbed into the culture to the point where most people don't even know where it comes from, right? Yeah. The white mm-hmm. whale. Well, that's my white whale. Fucking Master Chef episode. Like, and they're mentioning it on fucking reality TV. That's the thing that makes TV. me crazy that I choose. Right. Exactly. Like, this is the power. When people say literature is powerful, it's like, yes, it is. Like that, but like, this is what they're talking about. Maybe like it's it's this cultural kind of influence that it does to people. It lets you. It opens your eyes not just to like you know other perspectives and stuff like that, which is a huge important part of books but like it also changes the culture like ever so subtly even if it takes a hundred years right because moby dick was panned when it first came out it wasn't it wasn't considered a great novel it didn't sell a lot of copies compared to some of his other books and uh you know it's considered a failure that's yeah i mean the last scenes are I mean, really, not even just the last scenes, but, like, the scenes from when they encounter this other ship, like, when, you know, this other ship has gone off chasing the white whale, you know, and they're sitting there waiting for this ship to come back, and they find out that, you know, those were the voices that they had heard the last night, like, no, we know that the people that are from your ship are the people that drowned and this guy's son is on the ship several other or two other sons of captains or something or people on that ship are also on the ship that went down chasing Moby Dick and it's just like kind of fucked up and heart-wrenching and after that like it continues to be right like uh it's Fadula or the Parsi, I think that he's the one who dies on the line, right? Like he's tangled up in the rope that's yeah, wrapped around. He gets around tangled Moby in the Dick. line and gets pulled out of the boat and then gets caught up in one of the other line boats, boats yeah. lines as they crisscross and basically just gets pulled in half. Like just the ropes go right through him. And then like yeah, I guess like Moby comes up underneath the their boat and like breaks and it because, in half basically, yeah, right? I guess if you don't know this, I mean, it's a trope in some movies and stuff like that. Like, I'm not a big sailor, even though I grew up, you know, on, near the Chesapeake Bay and shit. There I knew people that were. But, like, you can easily lose a hand or something like that when a rope catches and you're in the wrong spot. And that yeah. rope comes loose from a hold. And then it just, you know, the weight of the boat, the force of the sail swinging around could easily just sever your hand. Like, it's just so tense. Like, so much power and pressure on that thing. So when a two-ton whale starts pulling a line of a harpoon that's dragged into it and then you get caught up in it i mean it's not going to stop unless you cut the line right like fast enough to the point where 
it wouldn't take off your leg or cut you around the middle in half into two pieces type thing. So it is very gruesome. You know, it's a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, even today, right? If you ever watch like Deadliest Catch type shit, you see stuff like that happen. If somebody gets caught up in the line and then they're fucking lose their foot, like because it just like took their foot off because like, you know, nothing stopping the power of nature type thing. I guess, right? Like, yeah, yeah, and like Ahab's leg, his wooden leg snaps off. Right. I like that. Well, it's it's made of whalebone. It's made out of a whale yeah. rib bone, and it, when it snaps off, it becomes more of a weapon type thing. Yeah. And he can't walk because he's missing his fucking leg, and he's an old man anyway, right? So like, yeah. he has to be carried, and he's like ordering these people to carry him into these like small skiffs off the main boat to go after the white whale, and it's, you know, it's very intense. Like it was a good little ending to that, I thought. And I guess it's symbolic, like you would say, somebody like Bloom would say, of like, you know, Ishmael floating by himself in the water for days until like a French boat comes and picks him up or something or a Dutch boat. And they're like, whoa, like what happened? And he tells, you know, he's the only one to tell a tale, like the book of Job, right? Big thing of the whale. So no doubt Melville was using that pretty deliberately. I mean, that's all well known. We're not telling you anything new if you're into books. Did they get pulled onto another ship? Is that what happens here? Uh, no. I don't fucking remember. What do you mean, at the end? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. There is another ship that comes by where they find the captain lost his arm, and that's when Ahab gets really obsessed and is like, did the white whale take it? Did the yeah, white whale, yeah, you yeah, saw yeah, it? Yeah. Like, kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, But whenever they come across the ship, they explain in the book that it was customary for, like, a crew of people, maybe one of the first mates or the captains, to row out and, like, board the ship and have a talk. Kind of like, what did you see? What are your maps looking like? Kind of thing. And that's different, you know, countries, too. So, like, you'd have a translator that could speak, like, Dutch or something to a a Dutch ship and then Spanish to a Spanish ship and French ship, so on and so forth kind of thing. English to the English-speaking ones. But, yeah. Yeah, and Uh, it's the Rachel that picks up Ishmael at the end. Right? I don't remember. I think so. I'm sure they say it in this last chapter. Yeah. Yeah, and I did not look at any of the explanatory notes. I probably should have. That would have been helpful. Yeah, it's the Rachel. Yeah. And that Rachel's important because it was like a bunch of people were lost and they were like searching for sailors or something that were lost. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, that's the end of it right there. I just had a few things left about that Bloom thing if you just want to chat about it. Like, you know, Bloom calls Melville one of the best American writers ever. What do we think? He's not alone in that. I don't think think he's wrong. I mean, this is the only Melville I've read. So, you know, I can understand why a book like this would be you know, among Bloom's favorites, I can see, uh, you know, why he finds it um, in some relationship to Whitman. Well, that, uh, and the reason he says it with that in that lecture, if anybody's interested to watch it, where he says that he does compare it to Leaves of Grass with Whitman because the books came out very similar time periods to each other. They were contemporaries. Um, but he says Bloom's theory on this, at least, is uh, the, the it was it represents the shift that was happening in American culture at the time. So, if you don't know your history, right, we talked about this a little bit with Leaves of Grass episode, episode twelve, available on Patreon.com/slash Heavy Board. Uh, 
where we go over Whitman's famous book, Leaves of Grass, because it is this, like these were the first, this was a lead up to the Civil War. There was a change in the country. The abolitionist movement was growing, right? Like it was much, you know, it was small, but it was growing and the sentiment was happening in order to abolish, you know, uh, slavery and certain things like that. Like we were becoming what you would call, you know, more liberal or, you know, more perfect union or whatever you want to call it type thing. So there was this kind of like shift in the culture and, and Bloom says that Melville and Whitman and some other writers in that period were the big representatives of this new kind of thought that was coming off, you know, more equal, more, you know, getting rid of uh, what we look at as horrific practices, right? Like slavery and stuff today. So I think that's why he compares it to Leaves of Grass. At least that's what he says is that it represents this big shift that was happening leading up to the Civil War and then after kind of in America that, you know, changed the landscape of the culture forever kind of thing. But yeah. <clears throat> and then this is just the last thing with the, when he says it's a prose poem, not a novel, what do we think of that? I mean, it makes sense why. I mean, there are some really, like, just passages that are just, I mean, so, like, in terms of how they sound, really beautiful. I mean, when the chapter where they meet the Rachel, right? Soon the two ships diverged their wakes. And long as the strange vessel was in view, she was seen to yaw hither and thither at every dark spot, however small, on the sea. This way and that her yards were swung round, starboard and larboard. She continued to tack. Now she beat against the heart, a head sea, and again it pushed her before it, while all the while her masts and yards were thickly clustered with men, as three tall cherry trees when the boys are cherrying among the boughs. But by her still halting the course and winding, woeful way. You plainly saw that this ship that so wept with spray still remained without comfort. She was Rachel, weeping for her children because they were not. And you know, I'm no kind of voice actor, and I'm not Bloom, and I'm not going to read it as well as him. Um, there is an audiobook version of this that I listened to a little bit of that's really well voice acted. Like, it's really well done. Um, so if you're looking at options for that, if, like, you need help getting through this, I would recommend. I think it's the Audible version. Let me check. I'm sure there's a bunch of them on YouTube. There too. are there are a bunch of them, but honestly, like I decided um, to go with this one because it was so good. Naxos audiobooks, complete classics, unabridged. I think it was done pretty recently. Um, if you subscribe to Audible, I think like you can listen to it for free for like a month or something like that. Yeah, you can also get our podcast on there, listeners, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so if you're an Audible user, we're on there. But my thing with this is, you know, I, I guess he's right to some extent. I think we use poetry to describe other things a little too liberally. 
granted i'm taking into consideration this is harold bloom using it so it's not like he's just using it willy-nilly here like oh it's like poetry and it's like he's being serious about it um narrated by just... william hootkins that's the narrator that i think is the best one okay um but, but yeah. yeah, so I don't know if I'd go as far as saying, oh, it's a prose novel or it's a prose poem. No, and novel. I wouldn't. It definitely blurs the line. It definitely so plays with genre, but I would still yeah. call it a novel. Right, because it is using the novel form, although it's using a lot of different forms. And this is where I got to like kind of. But yeah, you know, like I said, we are well. Bloom doesn't like Wharton, and I think Wharton is fucking great. So you know we'll just disagree on things like that but this is where i got like the kind of joyce vibes and i get i'm, I'm doing it backwards yeah. right obviously joyce was inspired by melville not the other way around but i was definitely getting that like no doubt joyce loved melville and like thought it was great read it when he was a kid and all that kind of stuff so yeah i mean there's a lot about it that feels really genre bending in moments especially maybe not, ulysses not the way you would see in you know the contemporary moment yeah, but... especially Ulysses. When I read Ulysses and then read this, like I said, I kind of did it in reverse order because clearly Moby Dick influenced Ulysses. But when I read that, I was just been a very similar vibe. Like, no doubt Joyce was yeah, like using I would say Moby Ulysses Dick as a guide. Is probably, I haven't read it, but I, from what little I know of it, seems more experimental in its prose. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, but it's it just very similar vibes I got reading the books in so close to feels... each other, months apart like this, so... You know, not necessarily epic in the way that you would think about Homer, but it does feel like this grand, like, epic Right, that's what uh, it was. It was trying to be, and no doubt using that, right? Like, it was using Shakespeare, Homer, like, no doubt Melville was reading all of that and loving it. And, like, wants to pull in all of, like, this historical information in a way that's, like, really, um, you know sort of put straightforwardly to the reader like there's just chapters of it you know i was i was curious and i know there's like a bunch of theories about this um what we what you thought of it in terms of how did this book become so popular because it was panned by critics when it came out it was a flop commercially it didn't sell copies uh i think he had to uh, uh no american press would would publish it i think he had to wow. get it published through like a british press at first uh, and I'm just like, so how did this become such a huge cultural touchstone? Was it academia? Like, was it like academics studying it years later that kind of brought it up from the dead kind of thing? Or how does that happen? Or how do we think? Or Yeah, I mean, like, I think obviously, you know, we don't know because we didn't do that research unless you did, in which case, please do tell uh, me. I didn't, but I mean, I think if I did I... try to do that research, it would be futile. Like, I don't know if I'd get an exact answer no, I don't it know would just be a theory, an educated theory on how maybe. Because I've heard things like Great Gatsby famously was not a big hit when it came out. But now that's a huge cultural touchstone. And there's a lot of theories on that. There's like, oh, it could be academia that like suddenly realized its merits, you know, and held it up a couple, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later. I mean, but I've heard another story about Great Gatsby where it's like the one of the reasons it got big was because in World War Two when they were handing out free paperbacks to American soldiers, they were handing out these kind of like double books in one type thing. So they printed like Great Gadsby and like some other novel together and would hand it out to the soldiers as like a book to read while they're sitting around type thing. 
And there's rumors, there's theories that that helped revive it because then every soldier had read Great Gatsby by that point because you're just sitting around those foxholes, right? Like not knowing what to do and just read a book, smoke, until 15, 20 minutes of sheer terror come happens and you got to kill people. So my guess would be is that in retrospect, we look at this novel as like this, uh, like a portrait of a piece of American culture and history that we otherwise might, you know, not hang on to. And like, you know, there, I don't know how many books there are about, you know, whaling communities in the U.S. Um, no idea. But Probably not many, yeah. It seems... Well, first of all, like, there's the obsession thing, right? You know, of chasing something to madness, to death. Right. Um, which I think is probably something that holds well in literature like it's it i mean it does have like this shakespearean almost like sense of importance of like this almost tragic character who isn't quite i wouldn't maybe describe him quite as tragic because we don't he like he ahab isn't really our hamlet right like he's not our main guy um but I think it's there. I think there's, um, let's look. But yeah, I would say probably like it's just this really intricate view at, and attempt to explain this piece of American history and culture. According to Vanity Fair, instead of being a page turner, Moby Dick is a repository of American history and culture and the essentials of Western literature. Um, according to some shitty website called History Hit. Let's see. Yeah, I don't care. Dude. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like I said, I it's mean, all theories. It's all we don't know exactly. I mean, I guess the most logical, easiest, right? Occam's Razor explanation Melville's is lifetime only sold 3,000 copies right is yeah. academics kind of revived its importance later on you know after Melville's death and then it just became part of the canon and, and yeah, all that okay, and I guess so the rest is history that would make the most sense to me like the simplest kind of explanation critics and scholars began to rediscover his work later on right, in yeah. 1919 and yeah, declared so right it after. as like a fine work right and one of the finest so yeah it was that, something that happened in retrospect always is man by people who already were in, interested in melville yeah always is so big fat whale <laughs> big ugly fat albino whale <laughs> The sperm whale, yeah. Dude, when he was describing the sloshing of like uh, Tashtego or whatever falling into the whale head, it's fucking disgusting. Like that repulsed me. Yeah. I was like, like, oh, covered in oil and and fat. You're in, yeah. Like just just describing the smell. 
Well, that was funny too. Is like there were people in the boat whose job it was to just like hang out on the whale that's hanging off the fucking boat all night and beat the sharks away. So they oh my god, yeah. Like, well, that's just the job you could have. There was also that crazy part toward the end where like every time they stuck an oar in the water, they had sharks like fucking biting at them, and I was like, oh, oh my right. god, like, yeah. and that was like there were so many you know bad omen moments. In Blood in the water, yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, I'm happy to have read it. I feel like this is one that I'd be interested to revisit later on and like try to read again. <laughs> That's why I think, I'm not yeah, crazy busy and like overloaded with work. Um, That's what I thought too when I got to the end of this. I was like, you know, I really didn't enjoy this book like I thought I might. But maybe this is one of the reasons we encourage you to buy a cheap copy, listeners, is because then you keep it on your shelf five years, ten years, twenty years later, you pick it up. And you can be like, uh, you know, I have a completely different perspective on this now. Like, you know, I like it better. I like it worse, whatever it is. Yeah, I confirmed what I thought 10 years ago. You know, maybe that could be the case. But usually it'll be different. So that's why you want to buy a book. Support fucking presses and buy books. Like, and keep them on your shelf. Yeah. And uh, read them over and over again throughout your life. And, and it then... can feel intimidating, too, because it's like, it's not like a super easy read. Um but it is, it can be fun in moments. Like, you know, give it a try. Take your time with it. Um, don't feel defeated by it, as I at turns did. <laughs> because I did. I got really mad. I was pissed at myself. I was going back, asking myself if I understood moments. Like, I mean, I'm sure I asked, like, several really dumb questions while we were having this conversation. So, you know, that's just part of the reading game, especially... If, like, your job isn't to know Moby Dick cover to cover and, like, know all the Western literature tropes and all the history of whaling, like, you know, you're going to have to take some time with it. And it can be worth it. It's always worth it. Yeah, it's always worth it. Now we can say we've read Moby Dick, which I know a lot of listeners probably can't say they've done that, have you? Yeah. Or you could just lie about yeah, it. Yeah, right? you know, if you got to skip a chapter. Like, you pretend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretending can get you pretty far in the literary world, I'll tell you that much. Uh, all right, are we done here? Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm bored as shit. That's what we all do. Right. Uh, reminder, if you made it this far, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash heavyboard. Uh, if you don't want to pay for Patreon, you just want to support us another way, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, like and share it, leave a five-star review that helps us out, helps us grow, helps us get a bigger community going. And another reminder, we're looking for workshop horror stories. Send in your workshop horror stories to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, next week, we are doing Heather Chrisley's The Trees, The Trees. Did I say her name right? Uh, Heather Crystal. Crystal. What'd you say? I said Chrisley. I think it's, I don't know. I've been saying Crystal. We should probably look that up. It's one of those. We hope. (laughs) Crystal. Crystley. I said Crystley, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But the book's called The Trees, The Trees. It's a little slim one. It'll be a good little poetry one. So we'll go back to poetry here as we've been doing. Uh, Join us for that one. This has been Heavy Board.
See ya. Man. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.